Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing well, Sarah. Yourself? I am doing well also, ready for this long holiday weekend. Definitely, definitely. It's good to see that actually the sun in the window behind you. We had several days where that was not visible. Yes. Yeah, it's it's really nice out right now. Yeah, then it's going to get hot and then we're going to complain because it's so hot. Oh, but, yeah. you know, whatever. That's what we do in the Midwest, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we can never be happy with the weather, <laughs> I think. It's always something. That's right. Well, today we have our part two episode of Long COVID. So we have another great guest on today. Uh, Dr. Andy Basie is on with us. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Basie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Andy. So let's start out with a little bit of your background. Um, How did you get into medicine and kind of end up in the position you are in today? Yeah, so, um, you know, growing up, I always liked science and things like that. And going through high school and college, uh, kind of looking at what I wanted to do, it just seemed to kind of make sense to go into that. Um, in medical, so I did medical school here at uh, Nebraska, along with residency. Going through that process, I knew initially I wanted to do something in internal medicine, not knowing if I wanted to be a specialist of any degree, but I thought internal medicine was where I wanted to end up. Uh, going through residency then, there's a lot of things I liked, um, something I didn't like so much, but uh, overall, there was nothing that jumped out and said, hey, I want to be an infectious disease specialist or a nephrologist or anything like that. So I decided on general medicine. Um, and inside of general medicine, I like both being in the hospital and I like being in clinic, which is kind of guided uh, what my job looks like today, where I'm kind of a hybrid, where I do some hospitalist medicine work and then also ambulatory general internal medicine. So that's kind of what my my role is from a clinical aspect of things. I also have some administrative roles I have now. I am the uh, physician leader for the primary care clinical program, which encompasses internal medicine, family medicine, geriatrics, and med peds about kind of how our program kind of is going forward, kind of expansion of primary care services and different initiatives inside of primary care. Very cool. Yeah, and that's great. So you're one of those almost a throwback to where you do clinic and inpatient stuff. It seems like there's not as much of that anymore that uh, the the trainees coming out kind of take one path or the other for the most part. Now, especially in urban areas, I guess, and if you're in more rural, you, you probably mm-hmm. don't have much of a choice. Yep. No, that, that's definitely true. And, you know, when you look at our graduates from our you know, internal medicine programs here and other places in the country, vast majority of them that don't do fellowships do hospital medicine. Uh, trying to find ambulatory providers, it's, it's a difficult thing. One thing that we've done here at Nebraska is we've had this hybrid role where people will spend some of their time in the hospital, other times in the clinic. Um, some people have a little more of a division of that where one month they'll be all inpatient or one month all outpatient. I kind of still do them together. So I'm, I guess I'm not as smart as the other people there to kind of <laughs> split, split that up, but uh, yeah. <laughs> that's all good how so you have a lot of interactions then with trainees as they're coming through yep yeah so i uh staff the resident uh continuity clinic over at midtown um and then i do 
little over two months of inpatient wards where I'm with the residents on, you know, on that too. Now, are you originally from this area or did, are you a I'm transplant? I'm from Grand Island, Grand Island initially. So I grew up in Grand okay. Island and then undergrad at Nebraska Wesleyan and then up to Omaha. Awesome. And then most recently you have started the long COVID clinic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, with the long COVID clinic, the way that came about for me was back in, oh, maybe end of summer, early fall of 2020, um, my boss at that point, who's now retired, uh, came to me and said, hey, there's a group that has been meeting to talk about uh, long COVID and they're trying to figure out how to get a clinic set up. And with my role with the or primary care clinical program, um, kind of fit a little bit of what, at least knowing what to do in order to get some of these things going. So I started meeting with the group at that time, Kelly, Cockett, and um, a lot of the different uh, you know, subspecialists that were meeting to talking about the issues with you know, long COVID, post-acute COVID, or whatever you want to call it. So I got involved in that standpoint. Um, you know, when we were initially meeting, we were talking about saying, well, we could try to have this comprehensive clinic where it'd be a one-stop shop. Everybody would come and see everybody they needed to see. Turned out that, you know, trying to do that, ideally, that'd be great, but it just really wasn't very feasible because when people come in with their, you know, long-haul long haul symptoms, they might not need to see a cardiologist or a pulmonologist or a neurologist. They might need to see one of them or none of them. So trying to have something set up where we'd have everybody sitting there in one clinic site to kind of expedite things just really didn't seem like it was going to work out. And that's how we kind of came about doing it the way that we did it. Um, a lot of the other post-COVID clinics um, that were going in, you know, mid-2020 were either like physiatry-led, pulmonary-led, you know, just one, you know, subspecialty-led clinic type of a thing. And when we looked at doing it, we said, well you know, again, it doesn't quite fit because, you know, our cardiologists that were doing a lot of the return to play post-COVID um, visits, they'd be seeing people with a lot of neurologic issues or, you know, things other than cardiac type issues, which again, a bit out of their wheelhouse. So our approach was to take it on from a primary care standpoint, in our case, internal medicine, where we would see these patients first, kind of find out what's going on. Has anything been done thus far? Are there other things that really need to be done and who, does this person really need to see, you know, do they need to see these different subspecialists or not? Um, you know, not having any tests, they'll say this is long COVID um, or, you know, really a whole lot of treatment made it a bit, you know, or still has made it interesting about how to try to help these people. But again, that was our initial approach with our post COVID clinic, um, kind of start off general and then try to get these people in to whoever they needed to see. When were you able to get this kind of up and going so that uh, the public could come in? I think initially it was uh, rolled out as a pilot with colleagues at first to kind of test drive it, so to speak. Yep. Yeah. So um, it was in, let's see here, the end of March of 2021 is when we first opened it up to uh, UNC and Nebraska Medicine employees and families. So we first started there uh, from the standpoint of in the different institutions that were doing these you know, long hauler clinics. They were completely overwhelmed with the amount of people that really wanted to be seen and needed to be seen. Our standpoint was with kind of limited resources and limited time because, you know, everybody doing this was already doing a lot of other stuff besides this was really to kind of figure out, you know, how does this look? How do we do this um, without completely overwhelming the system? So again, we opened it up to the kind of the smaller population to start where we had people, we had some information out in the UNMC Today 
uh, and on the Nebraska Now page about filling out a survey about what kind of things people were still dealing with with that. And then we got them in, you know, scheduled into the clinic. So initially, uh, end of March, I was the only one seeing patients to start. Um, so started seeing people there, kind of deciding what kind of things should be done or didn't need to be done, really kind of utilizing you know, all the other subspecialists that were a part of our working group It's saying these are a type of the tests that, you know, cardiologists probably need to have to see these people or pulmonary or different things like that. Then in about, oh, June or so of that, of 2021, had a few more physicians come on board. A couple of our med peds physicians here also started seeing some people um, inside their own clinics, um, but from a post-COVID standpoint of things. Um, then in the summer, we started opening it up to people that had any affiliation with Nebraska Medicine. So if they'd seen any other doctor or been in the ER here at some point, they could be seen in the post-COVID clinic. Um, and then towards the oh, probably November or so of 2021, we then started seeing anybody that got referred here. Now we didn't do a whole lot of advertising for this, just again, from the standpoint of limited capacity and having three people with limited amount of slots that they can see these people. But we started seeing anybody that was sent in, whether they were referred from internal physicians or people from outside the community in different parts of Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota. So. Did you see um, just a wave of patients? Did it get overwhelming quickly? Um, no, it really, not really. So um, again, without necessarily advertising this a whole lot, it was a steady amount, but it wasn't a matter that people would be scheduled six months, eight months out. So people generally were getting in within a month or so of being referred in to be seen. So, um, and that's kind of been the case as we've kind of gone along still is we're still kind of, we're staying busy, but we're not to the point where the system's overwhelmed and people just can't, you know, it's going to be, you know, six plus months to get in. What kind of uh, screening did you do before somebody could get in? They have to you know, have proof of a positive COVID test and then so much time beyond their acute infection in order to be a candidate? Yeah. So we, you know, from the standpoint of kind of our, the triggers to get into the clinic was a person had to say they had COVID. Again, we didn't necessarily have them prove it saying you had a rapid antigen or PCR test, but uh, self-reported they had COVID and had symptoms for eight weeks. We picked eight weeks just from the standpoint of, you know, if you look at NIH, they say past, you know, the post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV infection is 30 days. We picked a little bit longer than that because we said, well, some of these people might get better in six weeks. And if we do it at 30 days, we might be seeing some people and they don't really need to be seen. Okay. And again, having limited amounts of, you know, slots in clinic, we didn't want to just necessarily fill it up with people that maybe didn't need to be seen. So we picked that eight week. Um, more so from a standpoint of just saying we need to pick a number um, that might be a little more than 30 days. We landed at eight weeks. So those were kind of the really the only two criteria to get into the clinic. So having had COVID and then kind of that eight week time period. I guess what's the most common symptom that you've seen? Yeah. So, you know, probably the most common things would be kind of the neurocognitive issues. So the brain fog and kind of the fatigue as something you know, very commonly seen. Shortness of breath is another very common issue. And then kind of the, the tachycardia issue, plus or minus chest pain, but a little more um, people, their heart, you know, heart's racing than that. Um, those would be kind of probably the big three of the things that we're seeing here with a lot of other stuff mixed in there. You know, a lot of, you know, smell issues are still pretty common. Um, again, some people have some smell back, just not all of it. So it's more of a nuisance maybe than it is a huge problem for them. Um, 
a fair amount of people that kind of fit in kind of to an like an allergy bucket. So like kind of a mast cell issue. Uh, we've seen a fair amount of people that have kind of presented like that with a lot of different symptoms kind of related to mast cell activating um, syndromes, kind of things like that. A lot of myalgia. So not really truly arthritis per se, but a lot of people hurt. Um, whether they have neuropathies as well, kind of numbness, tingling, um, kind of swelling and things like that. So with all the patients that you see, are you building somewhat of a database that you can actually collect this data and maybe try to analyze something so that we can figure out kind of what's going on? Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, what we try to do with our visits, we have a templated type note that captures a lot of different things. We have various kind of surveys and different things like that. We go over with people to kind of say, well, are these things kind of helpful? So screening for chronic fatigue syndrome, kind of things like that. Um, for the people that were in the ICU, we have some post-ICU questions that we've gotten from um, physiatry on that. So we have, for the people that fit that kind of aspect, we have some of that information. With that being said, the vast majority of people we're seeing in the post-COVID clinic weren't people that were overly sick in the hospital and in the ICU. A lot of the people we're seeing in our clinic were the people that had mild to moderate disease. So, you know, not even hospitalized from that standpoint. Now there could be a lot of reasons for that. It could just be the selection, you know, who gets into clinic here, where you talk to say the pulmonologist that what they see post COVID in their post COVID clinic is, you know, a lot of the people that spend months in the ICU that are intubated and have, you know, all sorts of changes in their CT. I mean, we don't necessarily see a lot of those. We see some of those, but really not, not a lot of those. Um, but again, we kind of have some of that information. Our notes are templated out. So we have that information to kind of, you know, at some point here, be able to kind of go through and look to say, well, you know, is there anything that we can take out from this? And I assume part of the evaluation that you have also is to rule out other common things that could be causing these, right? Because sometimes you have two different things that happen temporarily related. So, you know, all of a sudden they're tachycardic and they're hyperthyroid or, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, no. And, you know, one thing that we see a lot of is sleep apnea in these people, which, you know, chances are they probably had it before COVID, but they weren't overly symptomatic. And then everything else on top of that, it's just kind of another you know, another factor causing some of their issues. Now, again, it's not their only driving issue, but they have that. You treat their sleep apnea, they feel a little bit better at least. Um, but again, yes, definitely, you know, screening for other things going on there. Now, when these people come in, um, you know, the, the question is, you know, well, what's the driving factor of this? Is there something functionally wrong or structurally wrong? Because there's some people post-COVID that fit that kind of category of, of symptoms where maybe they do have interstitial changes on in, in their lungs, or maybe they have fibrosis in their heart. The vast majority of people don't though. But again, kind of looking at that to say, hey, you know, are their PFTs normal? You know, do you, you know, whether we image them or not, you know, are their lungs um, structurally normal or not? You know, for the people that have normal PFTs, plus or minus normal imaging, pulmonology is not going to have a whole lot for them, or have a whole lot to add to what happens with those people which is a frustrating thing because a person feels short of breath. They say, well, a lung doctor will fix my short of breath. That's usually not the case. You know, the, the good thing about that is out at Madonna with the physiatry group out there at Madonna is they do a lot of autonomic rehab. And for the people that have, you know, a lot of this dyspnea, that's not, you know, a structural lung issue um, or even the tachycardias that aren't, you know, a structural heart issue. There's different things that their group out there can help these people with. So just, you know, a lot of these people just have horrible autonomic dysfunction. Um, and again, like I said, it's not a structural issue per se, but they feel horrible. And again, the, you know, what they can do out of Madonna with PTOT, 
um, you know, neuropsychology kind of things out there can be definitely helpful for these people. But again, the first step is making sure there isn't anything else going on there. You know, to your point, could it be their thyroid all of a sudden is not either over-functioning, under-functioning, or anything else like that? So with these patients that, you know, don't have anything structurally going on, um, do you see them getting better with time? Have you had an, enough time in the clinic that things are starting to resolve? Yeah. So, you know, the vast majority of people that I've seen, um, you know, we don't necessarily do any intervention per se. You know, we talk about saying, you know, with autonomic dysfunction, making sure you're staying hydrated, work on incremental activity, which is difficult because it's going to be different for everybody. But people that are doing those things with time, they get better. Okay. Now, again, there's a you know, smaller subset that after three months, six months, nine months, they haven't gotten a whole lot better. But most people, again, will do better with time. Um, you know, the whole standpoint, you know, a lot of these people, the initially that we were seeing that were employees or families employees were already vaccinated, um, had a few people that you know, saw in the post-COVID clinic that got vaccinated after, had a few people that after they got vaccinated, their post-COVID issues went away. Again, one guy who had smell issues that got better three, four weeks after his vaccine, which could have been time. Um, you know, another person kind of had some more myalgias that got vaccinated that got felt better afterwards. Again, can't say it was the vaccine that did it, but, um, you know, really try to talk to these people about the importance of being vaccinated because you're having post-COVID issues now, you get COVID again, I don't know what that does. You know, is that going to change the course of their post-COVID state? I don't know. I'd rather not find out. So we're really talking about that, you know, getting these people vaccinated that aren't, again, a lot of people are though, which is, which is good. Um, but, you know, there's some people where there are some other type therapies we can do. They're all symptomatic type treatments, but for people like with neuropathies, putting them on things like pregabalin, gabapentin, um, you know, SNRIs or different things like that. Some people we've done that. A lot of people are, you know, symptoms are more mild, you know, again, not to the point that they want to take another medication that has potential side effects too. Now, the people that we generally do that for are the people that just aren't functioning. So the people that have, you know, extreme fatigue, they can't work anymore, or they exert themselves physically or mentally, and they're wiped out for hours to days later. You know, those are the people where you say, hey, you're having a lot of these neurocognitive issues. We can try maybe a stimulant or something like that. So, or we can try an SNRI or a gabapentin type medication because again, they're not functioning. Yes, there are potential side effects, but just trying to help them kind of get their you know, nervous system working more toward normal. You know, those are the people that we generally will try to intervene upon. Now you had mentioned something and, and Kelly had mentioned something as well, talking about, she mentioned like a POTS-like syndrome and you mentioned some autonomic issues, which I assume you're talking about kind of a postural hypotension kind of type deal as well. Um, if you could define that a little bit for our listeners and how difficult of a problem that is. And then you mentioned that some of our physiatrists out of Madonna have some rehab program for that, which I find fascinating. So I think that would be kind of cool to hear about. Yeah. So um, POTS, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, it's a condition that's not COVID specific by any means. Um, other things have, have led up to that over time, but we see that not infrequently in our post-COVID population, which what this is, it just is an inappropriate um, heart rate response to activity. You know, basically like with the vitals, person stands up, their heart rate, instead of going up 10 or 15 points, will go up 30 or 40 points. 
And not only that, it stays persistently elevated. And you know, technically for the diagnosis, you need to have that you know, rise in your heart rate um, for upwards of five, 10 minutes afterwards. Which you can kind of imagine, is, yeah, when everybody changes position, heart rate's gonna go up, so that way you don't pass out, okay? But imagine your heart rate just goes from, say you're beating 70 beats a minute, sitting down, you stand up, it goes to 130, 140 and stays there, you feel pretty awful. Um, so with, you know, one way that, you know, the way you start to think about it is you do orthostatics on these people, their blood pressure is fine. It's just, they have that exaggerated heart rate response. Now you can do autonomic reflex testing, like a tilt table test through neurology that'll definitively say, yes, this appears to be a posterior orthostatic tachycardia issue. But again, if you do vitals and they have that much of an increase, that kind of gives you that, you know, answer there. Now, what can be done about that? Well, there are some things that we can do. Um, you know, beta blockers can be used in it. Now, in the people that I've seen with POTS that have been on beta blockers, um, half of them or so feel horrible on beta blockers, feel even worse, they don't take it, okay? Um, some people get benefit and some kind of in between there. And there's a, other medications that can be used um, as well for this. Again, there's kind of second, third, fourth line medications that sometimes can be helpful. So like Ivabradin, um, uh, let's try to think of some of the other ones here. There's actually some data say that potentially like methylphenidate can be helpful in a POTS, um, you know, POTS syndrome, especially with fatigue being a big issue of that. So there are some options for that. Now, the other thing as I kind of mentioned before is kind of the autonomic rehab um, aspect of things. So working with PTOT and, you know, physiatry, um, you know, working on exercising to a point where you don't overdo it. And there's some different things there and doing things potentially, you know, riding a bike in a recumbent position might be a little easier on your autonomic system than if you're riding a regular exercise bike or doing work in, you know, a pool can be a little bit easier on your nervous system as you're kind of trying to you know, work things back. Now, there's a fair amount of people who feel like their heart's racing that don't technically quite meet kind of a POTS, you know, diagnosis. Again, they, their heart rate's not normal, not technically to the level of POTS, but they still feel lousy because their heart rate's always, you know, 90s, low 100s, 100 teens. Um, again, they, again, similar challenge is saying, well, yes, we have some medications that might do something for you, but they also can cause a lot of side effects. So um, again, we probably see that more so than true POTS, but we see people that just have that autonomic you know, or dysautonomia where things aren't quite right and they have, you know, symptoms related to that. So have you seen um, a lot of other cardiac issues like abnormal rhythms? Um, you know, in the, the clinic, our clinic here, not a whole lot. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of people that have gone directly to cardiology in their post-COVID clinic that I haven't necessarily seen, but um, the vast majority of mine have been more their potentially, I guess, more the inappropriate tachycardia where, you know, it's not truly an arrhythmia per se, but um, um, cardiology and talking to the cardiologist, there's some different things they see, especially for the people that happen to have some, you know, scarring there, they can see some different electrical issues uh, from a cardiac standpoint. 
Yeah, I mean, this role seems perfectly suited to, you know, a primary care who's used to kind of starting the initial evaluation. But I assume, like most things, access to care is, uh, is a challenge. So have you had any struggles getting any of the specialists to necessarily see some of these people? And, you know, is there a wait or, or has there just been great cooperation amongst everybody and getting, getting these people seen? Yeah, so, you know, from the standpoint, um, getting people into, say, pulmonary cardiology hasn't necessarily been that much of an issue just from the standpoint of working with them closely as we kind of set these things up and kind of having kind of alternative um, referral pattern to get them in to see, be seen in clinic. Um, with that being said, there are always things that happen where I refer somebody to pulmonary and whoever schedule it, schedule it like they would a normal referral and it gets put with a different person on a different, you know, a couple months down the road. It's like, well, you know, that doctor is not one of the, the post COVID people. So then I, cause the person's like, Hey, my appointment's in two and a half months. I'm like, okay. And I look to see it's with somebody else. I'm like, well, that's probably not right. So then I talk to whoever and they're like, okay, well, it's because there's a new person at the, you know, back desk or, or whatever the case is. But a lot of that has been just from the standpoint of the planning of this, we continue to meet every two weeks from a standpoint of the, of the group of the various subspecialists kind of talk about what issues are we, you know, seeing, are we seeing different things, you know, kind of talking about some of the different, I guess, challenging cases that, you know, we all see to kind of talk through some of these things. So if there is a person that doesn't live in our immediate area, what advice would you have for them if they're having post-COVID issues and they can't find a clinic that is specific to that? Yeah. So we do uh, telehealth visits as well in the post-COVID clinic. Um, so one of the physicians actually is only doing telehealth. Um, she does them on kind of one of her half days where you know she has slots for post-COVID, but again, it's just telehealth. Um, the other physician and myself will do either or. Um, so it's kind of up to the patient if they wanna be seen in person or um, by, uh, by Zoom. So um, that's an option, especially for people that you know, live you know, hours and hours away um, to, to get, get some help. So. Can you do the specialty visits via telehealth too, or do you have any partners maybe out in central Nebraska or somewhere that are specialists that could see these people? Well, we haven't done that yet. Um, for the people that we have done the, um, the telehealth visits for, they're people that haven't necessarily needed to see pulmonary or cardiology, you know, to that degree. So, you know, the things that we do and, you know, the challenge is getting some of this testing done. So you say, well, what's the closest place you can go to get PFTs? Maybe it's Grand Island and trying to get the orders sent out to Grand Island to get them done. And it takes, you know, quite a bit of uh, um, you know, trial and error to get those things kind of accomplished wherever that may be. Um, but uh, to this point, we haven't really had people that have been in outstate Nebraska or other places that have had to see um, the specialists. And again, potentially as we kind of go along with this because COVID hasn't gone anywhere yet and uh, post-COVID issues are just continuing to be an issue. As we go along, we may have to look at that to say, well, is there other people that we can partner with elsewhere too? So this clinic, did you build it from the ground up or was there another clinic that you had seen somewhere else that you kind of based it off of? Well, we kind of did it from ground up. Again, when we were looking at how to set this up, the different places, there were half, maybe half a dozen um, you know, post-COVID clinics out there or long-haul clinics, whatever you want to call them, that again, most of them had had them set up by was either physiatry driven or pulmonary you know, led kind of things like that. Um, so we kind of, you know, we borrowed from different areas there and talk with um, the chair of physiatry kind of, you know, 
post ICU clinic kind of things like that, kind of, you know, sort of modeling some things on what they do with, you know, post ICU clinic as well. Um, have you noticed over time, it sounds like you've been doing this now for, I mean, a couple of years, uh, you know, in, in different, a little bit different capacities. Have you noticed any differences in the variance with how many people you see um, with post-COVID things, or can you not even tell? Is it just yeah. COVID? It's COVID. Yeah, it, for, for me, in our clinic here, it seems like COVID is COVID. Um, so, you know, you know, being May now, somehow at the end of May, seeing quite a few people that kind of fell under, you know, Omicron. But again, we've had people from all the different waves. Um, you know, as for severity in that, again, that's kind of a hard thing to say. I, I don't really know. Um, I have seen quite a few people that were early 2020 um, infections that, you know, were two years out from that, and they're still having a lot of issues. So again, whether that's going to be true for people in the different uh, strains or not, I guess we'll see. Um, yeah. Um, if people want to get plugged into the clinic, how can they do that? Is there information that's on the web if you do, you know, Nebraska Medicine Post-COVID Clinic, or, or is there a number that they should look for? Um, well, the number to look for um, would be just kind of the general internal medicine clinic number, the 402-559-4015. Uh, that goes to the call center, and uh, all of our call center um, personnel are aware of kind of how to get this set up. So if a person says, I want to be seen in the post-COVID clinic, they basically, all they get asked really now is, have you had COVID? Well, yes. And have you had symptoms for eight weeks? And then at that point, they can work on getting people scheduled. Um, whether that's truly in writing anywhere in the website, I don't know that it is actually. Um, <laughs> we have not really advertised it just from the standpoint of, you know, our capacity in that. So I would love to say that we have, you know, you know, a bunch of other, you know, physicians able to, you know, see these people and be able to help out, which is not at that point, just with everybody's schedules. Now, again, this is another thing where, you know, we've been doing this for however long we've been doing it now. It's, you know, before the question is, you know, has everybody heard of post-COVID? Well, there's a period of time you talk to some doctors, they have no idea what you're talking about. Now, more and more information is coming out there talking about post-COVID. So is there, you know, anything special about me with doing this clinic? No, it's not. Again, a lot of it is about being an internist and talking about these are the symptoms you're having and making sure other things aren't going on with this. And then at that point, then getting them plugged into whoever they might need to see. What are some questions that patients could ask their providers to make sure that they're getting the care that they need if they suspect they're suffering from long COVID? You know, I guess one thing, you know, people could, you know, talk to their doctor about it, being open with the doctors, asking them, you know, are they comfortable with post-COVID and, you know, do they feel comfortable helping them out? And if they don't, that's okay. But again, then being able to refer on to somebody that um, has had a little more experience with it. Because again, when I first started this, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants and, you know, luckily had the subspecialist in our kind of work group kind of talking about if they're short of breath, these are the type of things would be reasonable to look at because, you know, thinking about things, say, should I order PFT? Should I order an echo? Kind of things like that. Having kind of the, I guess, the backup of the, the specialist to start was a helpful thing from my standpoint. Um, but again, that's one thing that people can ask them. Um, you know, the other thing I would say to patients is just be honest. Tell them what issues you're having, you know, because sometimes patients are maybe not completely forthcoming because they don't want to sound like they're complaining about things. And unfortunately, some, some people's post-COVID course, they have a lot going on. 
And, you know, there is a little stigma out there, you know, that people have been told, saying this is all in your head. You don't need to worry. You know, this is just, you, you know, need not to worry about this and you'll be fine kind of a thing. Um, you know, I've had some people say that they've been told that by, you know, their providers in that. Um, so again, just, you know, be honest there. And if, if a person doesn't, you know, get the help that they need, then seek out help somewhere else. So I guess that's one other thing, I guess. Um, a very common thing that we see is anxiety and depression. Whether they've had issues before COVID or not, um, that's a very common thing because these people's lives are kind of turned upside down and, you know, anxiety or depression about that is really not an abnormal response. Um, and again, if they didn't have it before, it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, the, the good thing about that is there are things that definitely can help with that. Um, but again, that's, again, a very common thing that we see besides the neurocog issues and, um, you know, shortness of breath and tachycardia issues. Have, with the, the brain fog, the neurocognitive type stuff, is there a screening tool that you guys use, any kind of inventory of questions that you ask to kind of assess it so you have something objective maybe to compare this visit to maybe the next visit or anything like that? Yeah, so a lot of times we'll do MOCAs for these people, um, kind of just see kind of more of a memory standpoint of thing, but it's not uncommon that these people have some sorts of, you know, whether short-term memory issues or different things like that. Now, the other thing is, not infrequently will involve neuropsychology for these people. Now, you know, so I'll talk to people when I'm seeing them with neuropsych testing, it's, you know, I tell them that what it involves is you get asked a whole bunch of questions. You answer the best you can. Now we use it a lot for dementias, like for people if we're worried about Alzheimer's or things like that. You know, I tell them that that's not really my concern here. It's more so just trying to find out what part of your brain you're having issues with. So is it a matter of short-term memory? Is it a matter of executive function? You know, whatever the case may be, because the good thing about that is there are some different things that a neuropsychologist can help them with, various things. So they might tell them, say, okay, if you're doing something, you need to concentrate on that. Don't multitask. Or you need to have reminders, you know, use post-it notes, use alarms, different things like that, that can help, you know, you know, sometimes quite a bit for these people there. So again, it's not just a matter of saying that they have some sort of cognitive impairment, but there's potentially some things they can do to help them try to function a little bit better. Do you have big plans for the future for this clinic? Um, at this point, I am kind of going day by day. So <laughs> nothing really big planned in the future for it. So again, ideally, um, I think it would be great if we had more help seeing people and kind of open it up even further, having more offerings for that. Um, you know, and again, part of that as we've been going along is seeing kind of how our volumes are going. And if we get to the point where, you know, people are being scheduled months and months out, you know, working with Nebraska Medicine saying we need more support to be able to do that, whether that be APP support, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, as of right now, we're doing okay with, you know, the physicians we have doing this. Um, will that always be the case? I don't know. I think Rick nope. wants to add more duties to his plate. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, and, and, you know, right now, Sarah and I are in the midst of, you know, this latest surge being infectious disease and infection prevention and hel helping with acute care hospitals and long-term care, et cetera, where you're looking like, What's this going to look like eight weeks down the road when all, all these people that are getting this surge now again yeah. are, uh, are now going to be candidates for getting long COVID? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, crazy, crazy. 
Well, I mean, I think it certainly fills a tremendous niche and something that we need to, to learn more about and understand so that we can, can help people. It's, it's interesting because, you know, we've had lots of, obviously, there's tons of different infections out there and, and trying to study the long-term effects of them, we, undoubtedly, they have long-term effects, right? I mean, ha- having sepsis in an ICU undoubtedly has a long-term effect. Maybe having influenza has a long-term effect, but we haven't ever really looked at it on a grand scale. And so this now we've got a compressed time frame with a whole lot of people that have had this illness that we can actually look at these things and maybe learn something that we can apply not just to COVID, but maybe to other things. Definitely. So uh, UNMC here, we're part of the Recover initiative, so the NIH initiative looking at uh, post-COVID uh, kind of course of kind of how people are doing with that. So we are enrolling patients for that here now at UNMC. Is that just an observational trial so, type so thing? It's a four-year observational study um, looking at people. Um, the NIH has it, uh, two-thirds are supposed to be acute, so people within 30 days of infection, and then the other third are people that are, you know, in the, the PASC or the, the post-acute long-haul um, standpoint of things. So. How does one get signed up for that? So, um, you know, we have some marketing stuff that we're going to work on getting out there. People can always go to like the National Recover site and they can fill out information there. And then actually they then contact the closest recover site to that person, wherever they might be. So that's one way people can kind of self-referral into that as well. I think it's another situation where, um, you know, a person may not directly get benefit to themselves, but they may be helping many others by, by being interested and involved and and enroll in this long term study. That's kind of the way these studies kind of work, right? I totally sign up for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So with my case, I, I went directly to through cardiology to get Mm -hmm. some help. Um, would there be a benefit if someone was referred directly to a specialist to still go see the providers at the long COVID clinic? Um, potentially. So, you know, a lot of that I think would go to what kind of issues you're having. Okay. Now, if you're just having, say, heart rate issues, your heart rate races on you, that's the only problem you have, then maybe not. But again, if you have other things, because chances are most people have more than one type of symptom. Okay. Yes, they might have that cardiac type thing, but chances are they have other things, which, you know, so fatigue is a very common thing. What's causing that? Well, I don't know. Could it be a neuro type thing? Maybe. Could it be pulmonary? Could it be cardiac? You know, you name it, it could be a lot of different things. So, um, you know, from the standpoint of a person having multiple issues, I think that'd be reasonable um, to see somebody, you know, like in our post-COVID clinic there to see, are there other things that we need to look at besides just, you know, what cardiology um, has to offer? Now I want to have you put on a different hat. So you're, um, you, know, you you work with the, the house staff a fair amount, and we have now graduated a couple house ca- you know house staff classes, or you know there's going to be one coming up that have their training has been almost exclusively during the time of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, you know, maybe they'll sit back and realize how unique that is and different it is from the training that you and I did. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's, I mean, how challenging was that? And, and do you think, uh, you know, their experience is going to change how they, you know, do things going forward? Well, you know, that's a very good question. Um, 
you know, when people don't know any difference, like it's hard to kind of reflect on that. But, you know, it was one of the things during the pandemic, like with the residents, so like at the continuity clinic, there were periods of time where we didn't see residents a whole lot because they were pulled to do COVID or pulled to cover something else because somebody else got, you know, sick or, you know, whatever the case was. So uh, their training was, again, by no means normal, you know, related to kind of just how the operations of everything went there. Um, you know, I, whether that, you know, whether they're able to look back on that, hopefully we get to a point where things go back more towards, I guess, a more normal state. So they can say, well, things are different than when I trained. Um, so ho hopefully that's the case. But, uh, you know, the one thing, you know, doing the post-COVID clinic, um, you know, over at Midtown, we see have seen a lot of patients that are post-COVID. You know, and I talk to the residents and they'll say, hey, do they need to go to the post-COVID clinic? And I'll say, well, they could, but we can also take care of that. You know, so I kind of use that as a way to kind of help with the residents and the training and say, okay, you know, I'm an internist you know, in the post-COVID clinic. You're an internist here. So these are the things that I think about kind of going through kind of the thought process of what we do in the post-COVID clinic that, you know, we can do a lot of these things without them actually having to go to the post-COVID clinic. Um, you know, so using that as kind of, a, you know, an avenue to kind of teach, you know, a little bit differently of how to deal with things because, um, you know, sure, it's always, you know, it's nice to refer people, um, have somebody else help with it. But again, a lot of the things, you know, anybody, you know, if you're out practicing in central Nebraska, after you're done with this, these are things that, you know, an internist can definitely do as well. And again, there's going to likely be a need for that. So again, two plus years in the pandemic and um, in end, is there an end in sight? Well, who knows? But again, we're going to be dealing with post-COVID issues for quite some time. With COVID being so dominant, how much of the, let's see, you know, because other healthcare kind of suffered, right? Diabetes care, uh, you know, uh, for example, how much, uh, you know, did the residents get to see enough of that in clinic or is COVID dominated too much that, you know, that uh, things are just going to be different for them from that standpoint? Um, you know, I, I think for the most part, so our, our population at Midtown, um, you know, when we looked at, you know, there's a period of time during the pandemic where a lot of things went to telehealth, where people really didn't come into clinic for a lot of different clinics. Um, Midtown was a little bit different, just with the patient population we have in Midtown, where they're not as comfortable, say, doing things, telehealth and things like that. We still had a lot of people come in for their care. So again, they're coming in for the diabetes care, their hypertension and different things there. So I think that they still got a, a good amount of, I guess, bread and butter, internal medicine type things that, um, you know, they need to be familiar with. So I think from that standpoint with the pandemic, I think that for the most part, they, you know, still got that exposure to things. Um, again, were the volumes as high as what they normally were? No, but again, we still got the opportunity to, to take care of our patients and their kind of their continuity of care. Are there things that they have seen or trained in during the pandemic that they just never would have in pre-COVID times? Well, they've got exposed to telehealth, which prior to the pandemic, there is none of that. You know, for a few years prior to COVID coming around, there were discussions about how can we do telehealth here? Um, you know, it, always, it came down to saying, well, do we need to spend a lot of money to hire a company to be our telehealth providers? Which in that case, we wouldn't have any exposure to it. But the pandemic, you know, shortly after starting with it, we figured out how to use Epic and to do telehealth. So um, the residents have got experience in that, which again, I don't see that going away. There's some degree, you know, telehealth is, you know, most likely going to be around for various things. So they've gotten, I guess, exposure to that, which, you know, when I was resident, no way, no how, even 
2019, that was just, you know, something that you would occasionally talk about, you know, someday maybe we'll do telehealth. So. And I remember when I was in residency, even though I went into infectious disease, obviously, I mean, the whole concept of PPE and what was appropriate and how to don and doff it and the importance of those were things that I, I mean, as a resident, it was kind of like, I have to put this on, this is a pain, I have to go in and out of every room, you know, but I think their education in general infection control practices and kind of that kind of stuff has been tremendous throughout this whole thing. That's gross, Rick. Hey, you know, it was a different time. I, 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 I won't say that I did start internship in a different century, but I did. And so the world was a little different back then. <laughs> I've worked with so many dentists that are like, even pre-gloves. They're like, oh, I hate wearing gloves. We never used to do it. Well, that's why that's they right. got herpetic Whitlow's. I mean, right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I still get those sent to me occasionally. There's sometimes the hand surgeons are saying, I think this is a herpetic Whitlow. And I'm like, well, yeah, it could be. I don't know. We don't see that very often anymore. Yeah. <laughs> keep, keep your ungloved hands out of patients' mouths. Yep. Please, <laughs> please do that. <laughs> so anything else about the clinic that we haven't uh, tortured you about for the last 40 minutes? <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think you've been pretty thorough. So, <laughs> Well, good. Yeah, we like to give everybody kind of a general idea. And I, and I think the other important part of this is, is that it's, I mean, it sounds like you've used, I mean, obviously you've had to have a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get this going and, and everything else, but you used existing infrastructure. You didn't create a new building. You didn't have to, you know, hire a ton of new people. You used the, in, in the infrastructure that was here. So there's no reason that this couldn't be done in Grand Island or Kearney or Hastings or North Platte or something to help the people that maybe can't get here or maybe can't do telehealth or something like that as well. So hopefully this can serve as a bit of a model for everybody. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And you know, if you talk to my nurses, um, they might tell you, you know, things a little bit differently because there's a lot of work that they have to help out with this too. But, uh, you know, definitely from the standpoint of as we set it up kind of inside of our own clinics, kind of using, you know, what we have already here, um, definitely made it doable. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we were talking about, well, do we have a clinic somewhere where we all go? You know, trying to get that set up was, you know, even just the beginning talks about that was extremely daunting. And honestly, probably was something that if we tried to do it that way, I don't think it would have worked. Um, another thing we like to ask just in, in terms of pop culture and stuff. So, you know, you reading, watching anything that you recommend, we, we always like to get new uh, suggestions in that, in that realm. Um, I can't say that there's a whole lot that I'm reading apart from reading my, you know, five-year-old and 10-year-old books at night. Um, not a whole lot. So I've stayed plenty busy there. And, TV. Well, my wife would have a lot of answers for you, but uh, um, not a whole lot from my standpoint. I'm kind of boring, I guess. Yeah. We started what's your, watching what's your favorite book you're reading to your kids. Yeah. Um, right now, my 10 year old, we're reading some book about dragons that talk um, beats me. And my youngest one, we're reading uh, the magic tree house. Nice. Yeah. But they <laughs> sound cool. good. Yeah, we started watching The Staircase. Have you guys heard of that or seen that? It's on HBO. It's um, it, it's interesting. Um, I haven't haven't gotten through that. And then we're finishing up the last season of Better Call Saul. So, yeah. 
<laughs> what about you? I've Sarah? been watching. I've been watching Severance on Apple TV. Okay. It's it's weird. Yeah, I don't know that one. I've watched a couple episodes a while back, but I haven't gotten further than that. So. Oh man, it gets way way more weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think as this progresses, and as you guys, um, you know, start to maybe see trends or anything like that, we'd love to have you back on so that we can kind of see where this goes, if that's okay. Because the 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 data analysis and the information that so many places are gathering that they can get together and uh, would be very interesting to hear. All right, sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Dr. Vasey. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and join in the conversation. We would love to hear your topic ideas. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.